join in with the others in welcoming everyone here this morning. This morning we're going to start a study, a series on the book of Titus. And as you'll see, we have about four verses under consideration here. So if your roast is in the oven right now, it's probably not going to burn. But there are a lot of things that we can pull out of this. And one thing that when I usually go into these books and I start thinking about these books, one thing I tend to do is I skim over the greeting and I skim over the salutation at the end. And I don't feel you can do that with the book of Titus. I think there's so much that you find in these first four verses that you can pull out and that you can apply. So that's what we want to do this morning. Now, before we do that, let's go ahead and read the text. In Titus chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, Paul a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. So again, there's a lot to consider in these four verses that we want to cover. But before we hop into the text this morning, I think it's important as we're beginning a study of any book that we understand the context, that we understand what's happening, who this is being written to, who's writing it, where are they at, what's happening in the society that surrounds them. So we want to do just a quick overview of what's happening here as Paul is writing this letter. Now, what we see is Paul is writing this letter to Titus, to a man named Titus who is on the island of Crete. And this is a, a modern day rendering of the Mediterranean Sea. And what, but what this kind of gives us an idea where Crete is. Crete was right here, this little island right here. So you see that Crete has access because of the Mediterranean Sea to a lot of different areas and a lot, has access to a lot of different people. Now, what we see is that Paul was here on Crete with Titus and he left him here when he had to go to attend to other things. And we see that in Titus chapter one and verse five, he says, this is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I have directed you. So Paul is saying, I'm leaving you in Crete to take care of some business for the church. So obviously Titus was somebody that Paul trusted to leave him in charge of these very important things that would have to be done. And we'll get into all those things as we go through these studies but again, we just want to look at that greeting this morning. So again, we see that he's left him here, and it's commonly accepted that Paul wrote this letter to Titus after the events of Acts, probably after his first imprisonment, his Roman imprisonment was, was through, but before his second, not too long, several years to his death, but he's not too far out from, from his death. So again, that kind of gives us an idea of who this is from, who it's to, and kind of the situation. Now, when we think about the island of Crete, the island of Crete, again, was in the Mediterranean Sea, and it had many ports around the island, which would give access to many different places all over the Mediterranean Sea. Easy access to those places. So a lot of people conclude that Paul found out that this, or thought that this was a great place because of the access to spread the gospel to many different places. And very well, that may be one of the reasons. But I also think he thought the people on Crete were very important, and he understood their need for the gospel. So he wants to make sure that they're taken care of. And when we think about Crete, again, it's kind of a melting pot. Crete, you have, you have 
access out to many different places, but you also have a lot of access into Crete from many different areas. So you're going to have a blend of a lot of different cultures, a lot of different religions, a lot of different ideas. But this is great for the gospel because you have a lot of people who are eager and want to hear the word of God. And Paul sees that opportunity. Paul understands that. Because he obviously thought it was important that when he left, he had to make sure that somebody was there that he could trust in to take care of those churches, to make sure they continued to grow, to make sure they continued to get what they needed to get to grow in Jesus Christ. So he leaves this man named Titus. Now, when we think about this, again, we talked about the, the blending of many different people. And when you look at the church, there were, set, there were a lot of Jews who made it up the churches there in Crete, but there were even more Gentiles. So I want to keep that in mind for, for just a minute. We'll talk about that in a minute. But they, again, you had people who were coming from different backgrounds, worshiping together, trying to accomplish the same goal, and that was to serve Jesus Christ. But these congregations, while they were full of life, and while they were doing some good things, there was a lot of disorder there. And they needed help, and they needed to get leadership in, put in place, as we read in, in verse 5. Things needed to happen. And there were obviously some issues within the church that needed to be taken care of. And anytime you find a church without strong leadership, you're going to find problems. You're going to find issues. That was Titus's job, to make sure that those things are taken care of while Paul couldn't be there. Not only that, you have the threats from the outside, from the society that surrounds him. And that's going to affect any church. We think of the church here at Amarillo this morning. There are a lot of threats from the outside of society from beliefs, from different false doctrines, from different things that could potentially harm us if we're not careful, if we're not sticking to God's word and making sure that, that we are taking care of what needs to be taken care of. So again, Titus had a job, and his job was, he, was to be here at Crete to make sure that these people had what they needed, and that was the word of God. So that gives us a little background, a little context on what was happening here. Now, as we jump into the text this morning, what we, see is, what, we, what we see is identity and responsibility. And this morning, I want to start out, and I want to look at the identity of Paul for just a minute. I want to look at the identity of Titus, and I want to see the responsibility of both of these men. Now, as we begin, the first thing Titus said, or Paul says as he opens this letter, he says, Paul, a servant of God. He describes himself as a servant of God. And when you look at the definition for servant, essentially what that means is a slave. And that can be a, a, a literal slave, a figurative slave. It could be involuntary. It could be a voluntary slave. Essentially what he's saying here is, I am here to do the will of God. No matter what, I am here to do what God has asked me to do. He is a complete servant of God. And one thing that, I, that as reading about this word, uh, doulos, if I say that right, is that in the Greek language, if you're going to refer to a slave, this is about the lowest term that you can use. And Paul is using that for himself. He wants to remove all humility. He wants to remove all pride because he wants them to understand that it's not about Paul, it's about God. And the word that he is about to give to them is not from him, and it's not about his thinks-so's or what he thinks should happen. It's about what God wants to happen and what God expects to happen with these churches here in Crete. So again, as we go through this, I want us to put on this lens of not what we can get out of this necessarily, not what we're going to gain from pulling a verse out of Titus. I want us to think of this in the eyes of Paul or Titus or those people on Crete. And I want to look at the, this, 
this whole book in this way. Does that mean that it's not applicable to us today? Absolutely not. We're going to gain and we're going to apply things that we take from this and we're going to learn from them. But I think we learn so much more when we do it from the proper context. And I think we'll find that out as we go along. And we'll even see this morning. So again, he is a servant of God. Paul is a servant. But the second thing he says is, he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. And that word apostle is essentially just a delegate, a specific, a speci- specifically an ambassador for the gospel, officially a commissioner of Christ. He's a messenger. And that's exactly what Paul was. Paul laid down his life to make sure that other people knew the hope that came through Jesus Christ. That was his job as an ambassador, as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And we know that, that Paul took that seriously. And we can see that, and we'll talk about that here in just a little bit. But he was truly an ambassador. His life showed Christ in everything that he did, in the decisions he made, in in what he decided to do with his time. He was truly an ambassador of Christ. And just like many other apostles, he, he performed miracles, as we talked about not too long ago, to help confirm the word that he was he was preaching. And you think back to the idea that Paul was once there on Crete. Spreading the word of God, teaching the word of God, helping these people out. And there were probably many people there at Crete who were part of the church who saw Paul and witnessed these miracles and heard the teachings that were confirmed through those miracles and those different things. And I'm sure they gained a trust in who Paul was. They understood that Paul was truly a man of God. And you think about him being a servant, you think about him being an apostle, that's going to build confidence in those people like Crete to say that he truly is speaking God's word. And they have a confidence in Paul, but not only does that build confidence in Paul, they also see his relationship to Titus and they see his trust in Titus. And that builds a confidence in them in Titus also, who has been left there to teach them and to speak to them and to help them out and to help grow those those works. Now, we've talked a little bit about Paul. Let's talk about Titus. The first time we hear of Titus mentioned in this book specifically, not the first time we've ever heard about Titus, but in this book specifically, we see that he says, To Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. So as we pick this up, we, again, we see that Paul is writing this letter to Titus, who is going to go out and work with these churches. Now, Titus, again, as, as we talked about, the reason we think that this was after the book of Acts is because Titus is never mentioned in the book of Acts. He's never mentioned once. But if you go and you look at some of Paul's later writings, you're going to see Titus mentioned quite a bit. And you see that Paul relies on Titus to do many important things and many important jobs. One of those jobs is that he took the, the letter to the Corinthians. He was the one that delivered that. He was given specific jobs, and we see he's given a specific job here. But if you go back and you look at some of those letters, you're going to see some things about Titus. And one thing that we know is that Titus was a Gentile. And we see that in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 3 where he says, But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Titus was a Greek. Titus was a Gentile. Think about that. Opposed to Paul, who has a Jewish lineage. But yet they're putting their desires, their think-sos, their backgrounds aside, and they're working for a common goal, and that's to serve Jesus Christ. What kind of influence does that have on a church who's a melting pot that's full of Jews and full of Gentiles who are coming together 
to worship and to work for God. And they can see and they can witness Paul and Titus working seamlessly together, not for themselves, but for Jesus Christ. What a wonderful thought that is. That you had two men who could put away and put aside what they wanted and what they thought and totally dedicated themselves to serving Jesus Christ and doing his will. And I can't imagine how much confidence that gave those people in Crete who were doing the same thing, who were fighting that same battle sometimes. Because sometimes it's hard for us to see eye to eye when we have different backgrounds and and go through different life experiences. But these men did it. And I'm sure that was a, a very positive thing for them. You know, they were accomplishing the job. And what we see is that Paul trusted in Titus and he loved Titus. And we can see that from what, how he talked about Titus. And he used several terms of endearment to describe him. In Titus 1 and verse 4, he says, he's my true child. Now, a lot of people will look at that and they'll say, well, I'm sure that Titus was converted by Paul. I don't know. I don't know that. It never says that. Maybe that's the case. I don't think that really matters. But what that tells me is that Paul considered him almost like a son. He loved Titus. You look at 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 13, he calls him a brother. You look at 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 23, he calls him a partner and a fellow helper. Paul loved Titus and he trusted in Titus. And he knew that Titus was going to take care of the job that needed to be done. Why? Because obviously from what we read about Titus, Titus was a capable person who was dedicated to service and dedicated his life to serving Christ. And that's exactly why Paul felt comfortable leaving here, leaving him there on Crete to take care of that work that he couldn't attend to himself. He trusted in Titus and he loved Titus. And here's what I find is that it's all about that common faith. They both had a a faith in Jesus Christ that led to that common responsibility to serve God with all that they had to put aside their selfishness, to put aside their desires, and to fully serve Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what we see as they have this common faith. And, and think back to the purpose of that, having that common faith, a common faith that they're trying to spread to everyone around them, and specifically in this letter to those people at Crete. And we see that's exactly what Paul talks about in Titus chapter 1 and verse 1. As he says, he's a servant, he's an apostle. He says, why? For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. See, and I'm doing this for your sake. I'm doing this because you need to have the hope of eternal life, as we'll talk about here in just a minute. But I think more importantly, what he is saying here in this verse, when we put on those glasses and we're thinking through the viewpoint of Paul, I think it more More importantly, what he is saying is that Titus would gain much more compliance from these specific Christians here on Crete because they know Paul and they trust in Paul and they know Paul trusts in him. They have that common faith and and they they agree with with that godliness. And I think that's exactly what he's trying to get across here. And therefore, they had that responsibility, that responsibility to make sure that these people, specifically at this time on Crete, had everything they needed to grow in Jesus Christ. Had everything they needed to make sure those churches were protected and growing and being a light in that island of Crete at that time. And possibly all over the Mediterranean at that time. 
What a wonderful thought that is, that they can work together and they can have that common responsibility and they have that trust in each other. Paul trusted Titus and he loved Titus and because of that and because of their love for God, they had that common responsibility and that's such a wonderful thing. Now, as we think of this common responsibility, they also had a common hope. And that common hope was a hope of eternal life. And then we see him say that in, in the very next verse, in, in two. He says, I do these things. I'm a servant of God. I am an apostle of Christ. I'm here speaking to you. Why? Because I have a hope of eternal life. And that's one thing I, one thing I, I, I got from a podcast I was listening to. It's called 15 Minutes and a Big Idea with Jordan Dancer. And he went through the book of Titus. And this is really what he, he really got dug down into on these four verses. And I totally agree with him. It's all about a hope of eternal life. And that's what drove Paul. Trevor mentioned this morning about, about our motivation in Christ. This was his motivation. His motivation was that hope of eternal life. You know, think back to, the, to how Paul described himself as a slave, as an apostle. Specifically that idea of him being a slave. When you look at that word slave, one of the options, one of the parts of that definition was a voluntary slave. And that's exactly what Paul was. Paul was a voluntary slave who voluntarily gave himself. Why? Not because he had to, but because he loved God, he loved Jesus Christ, and he had a hope that came through Jesus Christ. A hope of eternal life. A hope of salvation. And Paul realized that that hope only came through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ tells us that himself in John chapter 10 and verse 10. He says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Paul understood that life was much more abundant when it was lived in Jesus Christ. He understood the benefits. He understood the blessings of living a life in, the, in, in Jesus Christ and obeying his word. He understood that. And it changed how he lived. Think about who Paul was. Before Paul knew Jesus Christ, what was he doing? He was destroying the church. He was doing everything in his power to destroy the church. And now that he knows Jesus Christ, guess what? He's building it up. He's working for it. He's living for Christ. Why? Is it because he has a baseless hope in eternal life? Absolutely not. It's, it's because he fully understands that promise, the promise that was given to him, that he can have eternal life, that he can have eternal salvation. And that's exactly his reasoning here. And I want to think about Paul for just a second. I want to think about what Paul went through. And, and Paul lays this out for us. We don't have to do much speculation of what Paul went through. We see that in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 23. He says, are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received the hands of the Jews, 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys and dangers of rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from Gentiles, dangers in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. He was in a lot of danger. I run out of breath. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, without, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from these things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? And I'm not weak. 
who is made to fall and I'm not indignant? Paul suffered. Paul gave himself completely to Jesus Christ. Why? Why? Because of some promise that might come true? Absolutely not. Because of a promise he completely had faith in. Because of a promise that came from somebody who's not going to go back on their promise. And that's God. This is not a description of what somebody's going to go through if they're not invested completely. He was completely invested because he knew where the promise came from. And that's what he, he goes on to talk about here in just a minute. But we also see that in the book of Colossians as he's talking to those at the church at Colossae. In verse 24 of chapter 1, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. When was the last time you rejoiced in your sufferings? I don't remember. It's not something I tend to to rejoice in. But maybe I need to change my focus. Because if I'm suffering for the work of Jesus Christ, I have truly something to rejoice in. And that's that hope that Paul's talking about, that hope of eternal life. Paul knew that, and he rejoiced in it because he trusted in God, and he trusted in the promise. And that's what he talks about in the very next part of this verse. He says he has that hope of eternal life, which was promised before the ages began. It was promised before time even began. He understood that this wasn't a baseless hope, that there was a foundation to this. And that foundation was a promise that came from God, the creator of the universe. And God made that promise. And I want to talk about God's promises for just a minute. It seems like we've been talking about that some here lately. Several guys have kind of talked about this. But I want to talk about this for just a little bit. And I put this chart together. This is a professional-looking chart that I made. But what you see is is several promises, and specifically promises made to Abraham. And what I have here is a promise, the verse, and the description. And we're going to go through those pretty quickly this morning. But there's a point to all of this, and we'll get to that here in just a second. Now, as we begin this, we want to look at the original promise that was made to Abram at the time. And we see that in Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. As it says that now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land which, that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So this is a multi-level promise made to God, or made to Abraham from God. And what we see, first of all, is that if Abraham is willing to do what God has asked him to, to obey God, and do what he needs to do to serve God, that God is going to bless him, that God is going to create a nation through his lineage, which at this time we have to understand he did not even have a son at this time. He's even getting a little up in age. He doesn't have a son. And But through that nation, here's the important part. He says, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Keep that in your, in your head for just a little bit. So as we go to this next verse, we see that he kind of adds to this same, this same promise. And he promises them land. He says, for all the land that you, that you see, I will give to you and your offspring. So kind of just adding to that. Just, he's not taking away from the other promise. He's just adding that, that idea that land will be given to them also. He goes on. But the problem is, is just like man, just like any man, just like us at times, we get impatient. And Abraham 
got impatient. And he tries to take matters into his own hands. And I'm going to tell you, any time that I've tried to take matters into my own hands, most of the time, 99.9% of the time, it's a failure. And that's, that's any part of my life. I've got to have help. Abraham did this, and he thought, I'm going to take this. Him and his wife get together. And she says, take my servant, Hagar, and have a son with her. And that's exactly what happens. And this, they have a son, and his name is Ishmael. But this is not God's promise. And this is not God's plan. So what does God say? In Genesis chapter 15, we see the response to that. Verse 4, he says, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven. Number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. God could have rightfully probably walked away from this promise that he made because Abraham didn't keep his side. He didn't keep his part. But do you know what God did? He renewed the promise. He said, this is not going to work, but do it my way and it'll work. And he renews that promise. And again, we see a renewal to Abraham again in verse 17. He says, you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Make you into nations. I will establish my covenant between you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after. Again, this idea, all families will be blessed. And what we see is that they do have a son. His name is Isaac. And through Isaac, that promise is renewed. And we see that in Genesis 26 and verse 3. He says, I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. But it doesn't end with Isaac. It goes to his son Jacob in Genesis 28 and verse 13. He says, The land on which you lie I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and the north and the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. You know what's great about the position that we are in today? Is that I can look back on these promises and I can go back and I can open this word of God and I can see these promises. But you know what else I can see? I can see that every one of these was fulfilled. All of these promises were fulfilled. You know what's even greater is that they were all fulfilled through Jesus Christ. Paul talks about that in Galatians chapter 3.16. He says, now the promises were made to Abraham to his offspring. It does not say and to, his, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. Every one of these promises pointed to Jesus Christ. What a wonderful, wonderful thought to know that we serve a God who had this figured out, and we don't have to worry about it because he made it happen. He made a promise, and he's fulfilled that. He's fulfilled those promises. And because the fulfillment of that promises, all these promises through Christ, Christ lived he lived a perfect life. He died on the cross. He shed his blood. But the story didn't end there. Because he rose three days later. And because of that, we can have that same hope of eternal salvation. That same hope that Paul is talking about. That same hope that motivates Paul. That same hope that drives Paul. We can have the same hope. Because Christ is the fulfillment of that. 
And we see that in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13. He says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He's that fulfillment. He's that forgiveness of sins, and Paul understands that. Paul understands that through Christ, he was forgiven. And he dedicated his life. He gave his life to serve Jesus Christ with everything that he had because of the eternal life that was promised and that promise that came from God. But again, it's not baseless. Why? Because Paul understands something about these promises, and he says it right here. If you go back, he says, that hope of eternal life which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Paul says, I trust in that promise. Why? Because God's not going to lie to me. God's not going to tell me a lie. God's not going to go back on what he's promised to me. And Paul took that to heart. And what we can understand is that when God makes a promise, he's not going to walk, walk back on that. He's going to fulfill it. He's going to provide when he makes a promise to provide because God never lies. And we see that in verses. I love 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 20. He says, for all the promise of God find their yes in him. What a great verse. All of these promises, are, they're fulfilled through Christ. They find their yes in him. We see again in Hebrews chapter 6 and 18. We've talked a lot about this one in the last few sermons. He says, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is, possible for God to, it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast, what? Hold fast to the hope that is set before us. And that's exactly what Paul was holding fast to, that hope of eternal life, that hope of salvation that comes through Jesus Christ and through Jesus Christ alone. Numbers 23, 19, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and he will not do it? Or has he spoken and he will not fulfill it? He put complete trust in God because God's not gonna lie to him. God's not going to go back on that promise. And God made a way for him. And because of that, it changed his whole life. We talked about that. We talked about how that changed everything that Paul did. And we see when that, we see that that, that was going to come at the proper time. He says that promise would be, would be granted, or that promise would be fulfilled within the proper time. Well, what's the proper time? When we think about the proper time, we think about how life and eternal life are brought about through the good news. And that good news is Jesus Christ. And we see him talk about that in Galatians 4 and verse 4, where he says, but when the fullness of time has come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might have the adoption of sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of your son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. That fullness of time was when Jesus Christ came again, died, was buried, was resurrected on the third day so that we could be forgiven of the sins that we commit. And because of that, we have that hope of eternal life that Paul's talking about. And that's exactly what Paul is referring to. When he talks about that hope of eternal life, that's what motivates him. That's what drives him. That, that's what causes him to put himself into danger on a daily basis, to spread the word of God so others can experience that same hope that he has. And we see in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9, it says, And being made perfect, he became the, the source of eternal life to all who obey him. And that's the best part of what we're talking about this morning. 
is that that promise that was made to Paul, that promise that Paul is telling Titus to teach the Cre- the, those at Crete about is the same promise that we can put our trust in today, that we can rely on today, that we can allow to motivate us today. And he says that, that promise, that promise of eternal life, that promise of eternal hope is manifested in his word. And I think about Paul's response and I think about the fact that he went out and he spread the word of God. Why? Think back to Paul, once again, on the road to Damascus. A man whose whole goal is to tear down the church, to destroy the church. He hears the word of God and it changes him completely. It changes everything about him. And we know that that changing power, that power that's manifested in the Word is backed by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And we think about who the Word of God is. John chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Through Jesus Christ, through the Word of God, we can be forgiven of our sins. And again, Paul heard the word of God in a matter of seconds. His whole life changed because the word of God is powerful. He heard Jesus Christ. But you know what? We have the same access to the word of God. We have Jesus Christ. We have the word of God right here. The word of God that can change our lives, that can do everything that we need it to do to give us the hope of eternal life, that same hope that Paul had. It didn't just apply to Paul. It didn't just apply to Titus. It didn't just apply to those on Crete. It applied to everyone, including us sitting here this morning. And we can have that that hope, both Jew and Gentile. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what our background is. What matters is, are we willing to do the will of God? Are we willing to submit to that? And that's exactly Paul's response here. Paul's response to that hope of eternal life, that promise that was made to him was to go out and spread the word of God. And that's what he says. He says, through the preaching with which I have entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. What's Paul going to do in response to this forgiveness of sin, this response of this hope that he now has? To go out and share it with others. To go out and let others know that they can have that same hope. That was Paul's response. And that leads me to the question that I have for each one of us this morning. What is our response? What do we get from this? When we read of this and we think about Paul's response and we think about Titus and we think about their work and we think about their motivation, that they are motivated by this promise that was made from God, that was given from God and that was fulfilled through Jesus Christ. And we think about their response and their response was to change their life to allow the word of God to change their life and to live for God. And the thing is, is we have the same promise this morning. That same promise, you remember when we talked about all families of the earth would be blessed? That promise applies to us today. We can be forgiven of our sins. We can have a hope of eternal salvation. Why? Because Jesus Christ died on the cross for us and gave his life for us. And we can have that promise this morning. But the question we have to ask is, is what is our response? If we've obeyed the gospel, what has our response to that been? 
And I think of these few questions. Do we allow Christ's sacrifice to motivate us to live for him? That's what Paul did. Paul saw the sacrifice that was made for him, and it changed his whole outlook on life. Again, we've talked about this. Going from a man who tried to destroy the church to a man who did everything he could to build it up without regard to his own safety, his own health, anything. He let the word of God change him. Have we done the same thing? Does it motivate us? Does it motivate us to make better decisions? Does it motivate us to go help those who are in need? Does it motivate us to come do what we need to do for the church? Do we allow the word of God to motivate us? Or Christ's sacrifice to motivate us? Secondly, do we allow Christ's sacrifice to motivate us to go share the gospel? I think of my response sometimes when it comes to sharing the gospel. And I fall short. Why? Because I don't want to be rejected. I don't want somebody to to laugh at me. I don't want to feel like a failure. And sometimes I let those things keep me from spreading the gospel. But then I think of what Paul did. And I think of the pain and the suffering that he endured. Why? Because he truly understood the promise that was made. He truly understood the hope that came through Jesus Christ. And he loved others enough that he was willing to do whatever it took, put his life on the line on a daily basis to make sure others knew about the life-saving word. Three, do we trust in the power of God's word to change who we are? Again, that's very similar to number one, but we can allow it to motivate us, but we can also not allow it to change us fully. The word of God can change us completely. It changed Paul completely. And many other people that we read in the scripture, it changed them completely. And we can allow it to change us completely, but have we allowed it to do that? Have we allowed it to make the change that it can make in us? Are we still holding on to the world? Are we not ready to to fully commit? And finally, do we actually trust in the promises of God? Do you trust in the promise of God this morning that because of Jesus Christ, because of his sacrifice, because of his death, burial, and resurrection, that you can be forgiven of your sins this morning? Do you fully trust in that? Do you fully trust that if you submit to him, that he is going to take care of you because he's promised that? We can have that same hope of eternal life this morning. Do we have that trust? If not, We need to get that. We need to get in the word of God. We need to be talking to each other. We need to be building each other up because we can find so much motivation in the same motivation that that Paul found, and that's that fulfilled promise of Jesus Christ. And if you're here this morning and you have never obeyed the gospel, I plead with you to do that this morning because you have access to that promise if you're willing to submit to him this morning. We have water. You can be baptized. You can have your sins washed away this morning. Or maybe you're here and you're just struggling with something else. Maybe it's a sin problem. Maybe it's something else. Maybe life is just getting to be too much. I don't know. I don't know what's going on in your hearts and your minds, but we can help you with that, and we can pray with you if you'll come to the front as we stand and sing.